When I think about health equity, I think about the fact that all of us as patients are coming to the healthcare system with different privileges, advantages, disadvantages. And for historically marginalized communities like the Black community of Black women, we really need solutions that specifically address the needs and the gaps in care and access that we historically have had. For Black women, that is oftentimes finding a provider who you trust will see your humanity and who will take the time to listen to your concerns. Because if you have access to that type of provider, you're more likely to engage in preventative health care. And that's really what I want. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, I speak with Ashley Wisdom. Ashley is a writer, healthcare professional, and challenger of the status quo. She is the co-founder and CEO of Health In Her Hue. Health In Her Hue is a digital platform that connects Black women and women of color to culturally sensitive healthcare providers, health content, and community. Ashley is a champion for health equity and is passionate about taking an equitable approach to healthcare innovation. Most recently, she worked for an advisory firm called Junto Health. At Junto Health, she was the program director for the Strategic Ventures Group, an exclusive consortium of nationally ranked health systems investing in health technology. Ashley received her bachelor's from Howard University. She then got a master of public health with a focus on healthcare policy and management from New York University. In 2021, she was named the top 50 in digital health by Rock Health for her health equity advocacy. In today's conversation, we cover Ashley's personal journey growing up in the Bronx and what led her to start Health in Her Hue. We dive into her challenges and successes as an entrepreneur and also her experience raising venture capital as a woman of color. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Well, Ashley, I'm so pleased to have you here today. Um, for our listeners, I've got Ashley Wisdom, the co-founder and CEO of Health In Her Hue, with us for the In On Health podcast. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, Ashley. Of course. Thank you for having me, KP. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, you've been um, doing so much exciting work, and I love talking to other entrepreneurs in the space, and I think what you're working on is a particularly important problem, but... I think your story is also very inspirational. And as a, a black woman entrepreneur doing this, raising money and having impact in the community, I think there are a lot of our listeners that are going to take inspiration and different lessons from your journey. So I'm hoping we can dig into that today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Great. So I love to start just with background and context. So, you know, you grew up, if I'm not mistaken, in the Bronx and have Jamaican and Bohemian roots. Can you talk a bit more about your your heritage and about growing up and kind of some of the foundational experiences that have led you to, to be the entrepreneur you are today? Yeah, so um, I was actually born in the Bahamas. Um, my my mom moved to the United States and with me when I was eight months old. So I grew up in New York, in the Bronx, um, is where I spent my formative years. But as an immigrant or first-generation child, I've seen my family come to this country with nothing, and built a life and now own homes and are, you know, just, I don't even want to say living the American dream, but like 
came here yeah. to and were able to get do you know execute on the opportunities that they came to this country to execute on and to provide a better life and, and opportunities for me and my siblings mm-hmm. and the second generation but I shared recently in a setting with um, investors that when my mom first came to this country, she was undocumented and was working as a a nanny to affluent family members. And so I would go oftentimes go with her to these homes and I would see like this other world. And we would go on trips with some of these families. And I just was exposed to this other world that we did not live in on our day to day. And so I think from a very early age, That experience also growing up in the Bronx kind of showed me inequities and differences. And I've always kind of questioned that. Like, why is it that certain people are able to live a certain way and while others aren't? Growing up in the Bronx, I went to both a public school in the Bronx and a private school. And I remember thinking about reflecting on my experience at the private high school versus the public high school I went to for my freshman year and how we were going through metal detectors. And it felt like I was going going to a prison every day for school and then comparing that to my all-girl Catholic high school experience. So my, those formative years, kind of just seeing differences in how people live, as well as growing up in the church and some of the um, the sexism that I experienced there has always kind of lit this fire under me to um, just speak up about things that didn't seem fair or just. Right. And and th- that's fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I mean, that's deeply personal. And I think a lot of people who have immigrant heritage, including myself, I'm having parents who are both Ghanaian, but I was born here in the U.S. I mean, my dad came here for education in Wisconsin. He did a, a doctorate degree. Um, so it's a little bit different, but my dad talks about he was a trained lawyer in Ghana. And then when he came to the U.S. to do his Ph.D., it was during a time of political unrest in Ghana. And that kind of made it not safe for him and, you know, and family. And so, but he talks about like the first job he could get was working at a Campbell soup factory because no one would hire him. Right. So he was on the line working on the on the Campbell soup factory while he's doing his Ph.D. And I think we all, you know, you, you hear so many stories. This is this is like America. Right. There's so many stories like this. And to your point, kind of processing, you know, because the U.S. just we have deep inequality of all countries in the world. We have some of the deepest inequalities. Right. And it's fascinating you bring that up as something you were just observing and processing at a young age. Like before we pivot into like entrepreneurial things, like as a young person, what did that how did that impact you psychologically? It sounds like you had a strong family strong relationships with siblings, community, that always helps through adversity. But how is that impacting you in terms of your ability to navigate and and, and how you felt in those moments? Yeah, it made me realize deeply that I, while I didn't come from wealth, there's a certain wealth that comes from having a solid and strong family and community. So Mm -hmm. definitely strong, close-knitted, extended family, grew up in the church, which also was like a second family to me. As well, And I saw that if other children who grew up in the neighborhood that I grew up in had some of those opportunities that I had or had some of the community that I community support that I had, that they could have had certain opportunities and experiences that I had. And so I say all that to say, like, I knew and had this like sharp awareness that I was not like this token. I wasn't super special. I just, you know, other people should, could have had some of the opportunities that I've had if they had access to some of the resources and supports that I did. And so having that awareness, it just made me, yeah, just made me more empathetic and made me want to do work that 
called attention to these inequities. I'd also share that I remember one time, I'll never forget this moment. I think I, I went to Howard for undergrad. And when I first came back home from the Bronx and I was riding on the subway, I remember feeling like my education was going to start to distance me from my community. And I remember sitting there and just feeling that like, this is the neighborhood that like raised me. Like this is a train ride that I would take all the time. And I started to feel like different and like people were starting to notice my difference, but it was just like one year in college. And I remember Mm -hmm. having that thought and then thinking again to myself that like, I can allow education to distance me from community or I can stay rooted in community and allow my education to help me do work to build my the community that I came from. And I'm glad that I, I leaned into that. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really powerful. And I mean, it's, again, those are, I totally hear that. And I love how you spun that into, I can use my education, my influence to impact my community, as opposed to feeling like it was separating you and creating distance. And so that's really powerful because I'm sure a lot of people experience this tension as they go on journeys like yours. Tell us a bit about your your college experience and then grad school and what led you to found Health in Her Hue. Yeah, so um, I went to Howard University for undergrad. I was pre-med. Most of the women in my family are either, my mom is a nurse's assistant. Some of my aunts are registered nurses. And so I was supposed to become the doctor, like take it to the next level. <laughs> I was no pressure, much, right? No, no pressure. pressure at all. I was supposed to become <laughs> Dr. Wisdom. But as I was pursuing this pre-med pathway in undergrad, I remember um, calling my mom one day and just being like, it's like, I'm only pursuing this because I want to give you all this title, not because I really, really want to do this work. And so we made a little pack. I still, I switched my major from bio and um, minor in chem to um psychology and and kept bio as my minor until my mom, I would still go to medical school and become a child psychiatrist. That's how I was able to, to justify that. But then after undergrad, as I was like preparing to um, apply to a post back program and gearing up for medical school, I got a job as a grant writer for a federally qualified health center. And I became much more passionate and interested in public health and policy, healthcare policy. And so I pivoted from my medical school plans to the disappointment of my family and (laughs) (laughs) instead chose to get my master's in public health from NYU um, with a focus in healthcare policy and management. And so my family's at least happy that I still got a second degree. Right. Um, There you go. Classic. (laughs) That's classic. My mom was like, what do you do? Because you're not a doctor. So it's like, it's either doctor, lawyer, something that they can like. Of course. Yeah. Immigrant. Like that's the immigrant (laughs) coming up story, right? Which one of these two or three professions are you going to be? It could be quite narrow. So we're getting, we're getting our immigrant parents used to the concept of entrepreneurship, right? (laughs) Exactly. Which is very, not the plan that my mom had for me at all. But um, working for that federally qualified health center led me to getting my master's in public health. I then went on to work for an academic medical center in New York City. I worked in two different departments in that in that um, AMC, and I call that out for a specific reason because it, it kind of leads into why I got started with Health Center Hue. But after that job, I then went to work for New York City Health and Hospitals in their Office of Population Health. And then saw the beginnings of Health Center Hue getting some traction and was like, this has the potential to be a business and a startup. I should probably learn how this VC world works and start to build relationships in there. And so I left um, Health and Hospitals to work for a venture studio called Junto Health. 
where our clients were strategic healthcare investors. So I was helping health system investors find digital health companies to make investments in. Oh, interesting. So I was going to ask, just to interject, because this is a big issue for diverse founders and particularly women of color founders is not having experience dealing with venture, not speaking the language of venture, not being used to how venture expects to receive business plans and presentations, all these things that can get in the way of a good entrepreneur like yourself getting the idea funded. So I, this is really interesting that you actually took some time to at least get a little bit of tuning around that experience before you jumped in. Exactly. And I did that intentionally because I knew that I was coming to this world with no network. Like I don't come from Mm -hmm. a family of high net worth individuals, no connections to family offices or investment funds. So I knew I was going to one, have to learn how this world works because I'd been steeped in healthcare for so long, no venture exposure. And then also as a Black woman, I knew I was going to, there's a lot of back channeling that happens in the business world. So I wanted to, for I guess a lack of better words, like build up my street cred in the venture capital ecosystem so that when it was time for me to fundraise, people would know, I know Ashley, strong work ethic, knows what she's doing. And that's what helped me honestly raise our, our first round of funding. That's amazing to hear um, that part of the story. And I don't think those types of insights are shared often. So thanks for sharing that for folks listening. there trying to get their game up for entrepreneurship. That's a huge <laughs> tip. <laughs> Definitely. So tell me more about the origin story of Health Inner here and what motivated you to start, start that company. Yeah, so a couple, a few things were happening all at the same time that resulted in me getting started with Health Inner Hughes. So the first being... Um, One, I was in grad school at the time uh, while I was working for this academic medical center. And in grad school, I'm just like reading all these papers and studies about health disparities, social determinants of health. And I had this heightened awareness about how all these different social factors impact our health outcomes as people and that lead to these different disparate outcomes in, in healthcare. And I remember feeling really privileged to be at NYU with access to these academic journals and increasing my awareness as a woman of color on the different things that are impacting my health and thought if I wasn't sitting in this classroom, I don't think I would be as aware about how intentional I need to be as I navigate the U.S. healthcare system as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. So my first thought was like, how do I take this information out of the ivory tower and bring it to all women of color who need to be aware of this? And then... Also, I don't want to, I didn't want to just scare them with this information. I wanted to build something to support them and empower them now that they were more informed. So that was one thing that was happening. The second thing that was happening at the same time was while working in this particular department at this AMC, I worked in two. Sure, can you explain what an AMC is? Yes, an academic medical center. Okay, good for our listeners. Yeah, good. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we, we use all this jargon. We and use these acronyms, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so yes, an academic medical center. I w- the first department I worked in there had a great boss, great working experience. The second department, I was warned that it was a revolving door for Black faculty members, especially Black women faculty members and staff. But I, as I mentioned, I was in grad school at the time and so was holding down this full-time job and I had an internship requirement for grad school. There was no way I was going to be able to fit an internship in addition to full-time grad school and a full-time job. So I needed to work in this particular department to allow my job to be basically my internship. Um, So I was warned, you should not go there. Like the head of the department is problematic. It's just a really toxic environment. But I was like, I'm just going to go there, put my head down, do my work, satisfy this requirement and be out. Mm -hmm. And it was as toxic and as problematic as I was warned. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it started to take a toll on me physically. I didn't at the at the beginning I didn't realize um, what was happening, but I was breaking out in these chronic hives, and oh, I. Wow. Yeah, like really bad hives. I still have the photos to document. And it's from from stress or what was happening? So I I didn't think, I didn't connect it to stress initially, but that's ultimately what it was. So I went to see this allergist and she ran all these tests on me and was like, you're not severely allergic to anything. But it never dawned on me to share with her like what was going on at work. And so all she told me to do was like take two Allegra's every day to kind of keep the hives contained. And I remember thinking, this is not helping me get to the root of what's causing these hives. You just you just told me to take with this over-the-counter medication. So I remember reflecting on that experience with this doctor, this white allergist. She was kind. She was not mean. But I just it mm-hmm. never dawned on me to share with her that I was dealing with racism at work. And it never dawned on her to ask you the question, right? Exactly. This is the, this is the <laughs> issue. Like, even talking to you now, it's like, wait, stress? Because we know. <laughs> I, for me, I didn't need to be a clinician to go that pr- go that direction pretty quickly because— of the shared experience, right? Like I'm not a black woman, but as a black man, like we hear these stories amongst in our community, right? Exactly. And so I remember comparing my interactions with her with my interactions with my black gynecologist, who I share so much more with, like talk to her about what's going on in my life, brunch, like my social life. And so Mm -hmm. I remember if I had, I remember thinking if I had shared with this white allergist that I was working in this really toxic environment, that she would have deduced that the highs were being triggered by stress. But I never felt comfortable bringing that up to her because I didn't think she would understand that as a white woman. And she never asked me. So mm-hmm. all of those three different experiences, the grad school, the dealing with this racism in an academic medical center and seeing how institutional racism operates and how people are protected in these institutions if they bring in lots of funding. I was so angry And just like, honest, quite frankly, just filled with rage. And I remember thinking to myself, this is not healthy. (laughs) I need to get this and channel this anger and this frustration into something constructive. And it birthed health in her hue. Right. And I just want to acknowledge first, thank you so much for being open and honest and authentic about that and sharing it publicly, because I think it's so important for other people to hear because Others are having these experiences, too, and they don't know that people such as yourselves that are navigating this and gaining some success have come through it. So I'm so pleased you shared. And also, like, I just want to connect the thread because this rage started at an early age. And I think people I don't want people to lose track of that. You talked earlier about your experiences as a young person kind of seeing inequality in different contexts as a young person and that not sitting well, right? And right. that issue is, as, as a young person of you kind of having those observations and it not sitting well and having experiencing racism and sexism as a woman, that's like an arc of a life experience, right? Then it's then coming to head yep. in these, exper- these three anecdotes you just shared, but these three anecdotes didn't just come out of nowhere. We're talking about a lifetime experiences that then led to that rage, right? Yep. And then you ha- thinking about how to channel it. And I just want to acknowledge that too, because I think oftentimes it can get lost, that connection that this is like a life experience you're talking about. And I can share for me, like I feel that, right, about inequality. That's why I do what I do, that, that underlying rage about the inequality and, and in some cases the unwillingness of the system to do something. Then you're like, we might as well just do it ourselves. Yep. Right. And you're like, look, if no one's going to do it. So then we just become entrepreneurs because we're like, no one else is here fixing this thing. And so I just want to make sure that people connect that and 
because it's really generous of you to share those earlier stories too in your youth. Thank you for that. But yeah, it's, it's, this has been, like you said, life's experiences throughout my entire journey that led to um, this head moment where I was just like, enough is enough. I've got to do something about this problem. Great. So now let's move to action. So tell me about how you started thinking about tackling this problem through Health Inner Hue. So what does the model look like? And kind of maybe how did you start and where are you today? Yeah. So how we started, I had this big vision for Health Inner Hue to kind of be this safe digital space for women of color as it related to just finding healthcare providers, finding information to help them manage their health. And then the community support piece actually came towards the end. And I'll share a bit more. So when I first got started, I had this big idea, saw like saw the health inner hue being a, I guess, crazy entrepreneur. You got to see the thing before you like even start to build it. Exactly. I was just like, I know this thing is going to be big, even though I haven't built it yet. And I started doing what I could do, which was I did a really great job at building a community around content for another platform before. So I took the same approach and applied it to health inner hue. I I'm a writer. So the first thing I went to was content. So I leveraged my network of Black public health professionals. I was a part of this Facebook crawl, Black Ladies in Public Health. At that time, I'd already created the mission statement for Health Energy. And I was like, I'm going to anchor myself in a mission statement before I build any product. And so I shared the mission statement in this Facebook group and said, hey, I want to build content for Black women, like health content for Black women. I want us to strip away the academic jargon and just make it plain as day, make it relevant and connect the dots between how our lived experiences impact our health and health outcomes. And I got an overwhelming response from like really prominent professional folks. And I was like, oh, crap, like I'm really on. Wow. <laughs> yeah. OK, you're on to something. Click. Yeah. And so seeing how much it resonated with the women in this group who are all public health, healthcare professionals, I was like, all right, let's keep doing this. So I had these women writing content for the platform, really making it engaging, connecting the content to like cultural um, and pop references so that it'll make the health content more culturally relevant to women of color and built a strong social media following and community through our content. So that was step one. Okay, let me stop there just to clarify a few things. So so you were creating this content, but the the means of dissemination, was it was it a website at the time? Or are you saying you just had a social media handle, you were pushing content out that way publicly? Or what what was the what were the mechanisms? It was both. So I'm glad you asked that clarifying question. So we had a Squarespace website where our content lived, but then mm-hmm. I was leveraging social media because I'm like, this is where women are going and they're scrolling for right. content. So I literally, KP, would like read papers, read an academic journal on my commute from NYU back uptown to the Bronx and would digest all the information being a nerd. And I was like, okay, how do I take the most pertinent parts of this journal article and make it into a really engaging Instagram caption that gives these women stats? And so I did that for like two years of making content more social media friendly, more relevant, more understandable. Exactly. And we were able to build a strong community around it. So women were DMing us back when we only had like maybe 300, 400 followers. And we're like, by seeing your content, I like schedule a doctor's appointment. Or I asked my oh, wow. OB this question because I saw this post on Health and Her Hue's account. And that's when I realized the power of what Health and Her Hue had to, you know, could potentially become. Great. So one more question. So then in this case, and I think my, our listeners are maybe at, questioning this too. You're just, you're doing this basically for free or how is this getting funded? And is there, because this is business to consumer basically. So 
you're doing this as a passion project? Is there any, how is it getting funded or what's happening? At the time, it was straight up a passion project. I was like, I'm going to create this content because it's needed, but always knew that I wanted it to evolve into a business. And I was like, I'll figure out the business model at some point. But you're getting the momentum. Right. So I learned from the community so much. Like, And one of the things that kept coming up was, I want to find a Black doctor because I've either had a negative experience with a provider or I'm seeing all these headlines about Black women not being believed. So I really want to find a Black doctor. And hearing that feedback from our early community members from the onset was like, that to me was the impetus for us building out this provider directory to make it more easy for Black patients to find Black physicians or physicians of color. Mm-hmm. So I launched, built that with a no-code platform. What spoke on the panel was able to connect with this young software engineer. I was like, look, here's the vision. I don't have money to pay you. So let's leverage this no-code platform that I found and let's build this provider directory. I had six doctors that I had a really strong relationship with and was like, can you be the first six doctors on this MVP of this directory? Right. MVP? Minimal viable product. Yes, Thank there you. we go. All right. So it's very... <laughs> Very early version of your product that's not sexy, that's not glamorous, but is basically a proof of concept for what you're ultimately trying to build. Great. So I launched that like on a whim. I kind of went rogue one night. It was like, I'm just going to put it out there. They say if you're not embarrassed by your first product, you're probably waiting too long to put it out into the market. So True. it was a very unfinished product. We leveraged Glide for the directory. We're using Mighty Networks for the community and using Squarespace for the website. So okay. as you can imagine, people were going. some people were going to Glide to find the doctors. Some people were going to the site for the content. And then some women were going to Mighty Networks for the community. So, And I assume you're using social media to help direct people because you had your followers there to direct them to these different tools. Exactly. Exactly. But as you can imagine, that's a very disjointed experience, but it went viral. So we had 34,000 people log into that M- the MVP of the directory within the first two weeks of launching it. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. And so we were able to capture those email addresses. In total, we had 55,000 people log into that early product with their emails. And that was the traction that we used to build our, to raise our first round of funding, the 1.2 million that we closed last July. That's amazing. So then tell me about the the model now as it's evolved. So on the one hand, with business to consumer models, often the question is about the economic model behind that. And oftentimes it's about users and engagement and then maybe finding an exit or, you know, so that's one approach or, you know, a more business to business model might be bringing this to different enterprises, but that doesn't seem maybe where this would go. Or I don't know, are you somewhere in between? Like, how is this model evolving now? Because it's, it's amazing. And its impact can be massive, massive, right, as it grows and exponentiates. So, yeah, so we are actually leaning into the enterprise B2B2C strategy, go-to-market strategy. Our, my initial thinking was D2C because I knew I was going to have to prove out that Health and Review was able to drive engagement before any employer or any health plan would even pay attention. And you proved that. Exactly. But also when we when I started building, this was in 2018. So this is pre-George Floyd. This is mm-hmm. pre this racial reckoning um, and pre-health equity being like the sexy topic and pre-COVID also. So I knew that I was going to have to have significant consumer engagement and consumer data to even have a conversation with an enterprise customer. And so that was the initial thought with like focusing on D2C to start. 
where we, our model is now, so we recently, um, in terms of product, we had launched a downloadable app that brought all three core components of Health Interhuman to one space. And we leveraged a no-code platform for that as well while we were raising the pre-seed round. So another bootstrap product. Can you explain, you've used this term, a no-code platform. Some people may not know what that is. I think it's inferred, but just if you could explain. Yeah, so a no-code platform is a platform that allows you to build a product without having to do any um, coding. So I am not a software engineer. I don't know code. But if you as someone who doesn't have or someone who doesn't have coding experience can essentially go on one of these platforms like Glide or Adalo and build out a concept for an app that's functional. And it's a very lean way to get a product to market. That's amazing. I want to make sure our listeners heard that for young entrepreneurs out there. You don't, you know, have to necessarily be an engineer in this day and age, as you can see with Ashley's story. If you hustle and you've got a great idea and it's technological, there are tools out there to get you going on the cheap, basically. So um, that's that's important for our listeners to know. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you called that out because, um, you know, most of us as founders of color are having to bootstrap before we can even raise capital. And so I didn't have funding to hire an engineer, but was able to pay for the subscriptions to, to build an early version of our product on these one of these no-code platforms. So we learned a lot from that downloadable app. We had 8,000 people download that. Our provider directory grew to over 1,000 providers and practitioners. But we realized that not everyone wants to have to download an app for health content. So we pivoted from an app to a progressive web platform that is that we launched in April of this year. And we were able to migrate all 8,000 of those users onto this new platform. And we have a freemium model. So you can create a free free account. You have access to the directory, some access to our content, and some access to our community forums. And then we have a new premium account that gives you unlimited access to the Health Interview platform, our content series, our content library, and then eventually we're planning to add on a telehealth capability, and that will also be a part of the premium experience. Got it. And I assume, like, who would be in your in your kind of business to business model? Who? Where are you getting the most traction or in your strategy, where are you trying to grow the most in that space? Yeah, so we surprisingly were able to secure our first paid pilot with a health plan. So that's our first enterprise contract that we have. Great. We have an employer that is potentially like we're still in contract negotiation. So we're getting um, some or some inbounds for both health plans and employers. But my initial hypothesis was to try to sell them to the employers. Like we know selling it to health plans is a long sales cycle. A long sales cycle, yeah. And selling into employers is not an easy feat either, but I think you can get to a decision faster with an employer. So our thinking was sell into employers, show that we're able to drive engagement, that women are having great experiences with health and our hue, and then those employers would advocate to the health plans that they are paying for to fold health and our hue into their benefit offering. So that's our hypothesis and our, our you know, our, our initial thinking on our enterprise strategy. But we're just still kind of like in the early days of, of, of mapping. Great. And I assume you're still getting growth in your direct-to-consumer strategy as well. So you still have that lever exactly. um, from what I can hear. Okay. So tell me, what's your grand vision? I mean, you've had exponential growth. You've had kind of like the pop that every entrepreneur looks for with an idea like this early on. So what's your grand vision of the how you want to reach one of color and the scale and scope of it. So I think when people ask me, what's my big vision for health interviews, I really want us to be the go-to platform when it comes to anything related to healthcare for women of color. So whether it's trying to find a trusted provider or get a consultation from a, 
um, a racially concordant provider, you're coming to Health Hue. If you have a question, you're not relying on Google. You can come to Health Hue and look for content and answers to questions on an array of healthcare topics. And then a safe space to connect with other women of color who may um, have had a similar diagnosis to you. So that community support. In terms of like future vision, I want us to also be helping women navigating the healthcare system. So doing some care coordination and supporting them with finding the appropriate provider, in-network provider and services that could best meet their needs. And yeah, just kind of really being like the go-to one-stop shop when it comes to healthcare for women of color. So so that's amazing. And I mean, I think I, I love hearing this story. It's very inspiring. And I would love to now dig a little bit into the fundraising process. So I think What's great is earlier on our conversation, you talked about how you kind of got some early experiences that help you understand how fundraising works and how venture capital thinks. I mean, you've had success raising your initial round. I assume that was a seed round. Mm-hmm. Now you're moving on to the next step, I'm, I'm sure, in your raise process. Tell me what that experience has been like for you as a black woman, even going in and you know prepping yourself. I know it's Long and short is it's just straight up hard. So I want to hear what that's been like for you. Yeah. So fundraising is hard for any entrepreneur. Then you add Mm -hmm. on being black. Then you add on being a woman. Then you add on not having a degree from an Ivy League institution. You know, it just it gets harder because people are looking for that pattern recognition. And if they haven't invested in someone who looks like you or who's building a company that looks like yours, that may be different. You know, it's hard to prove that you are worth getting an investment in. One of the, and I try to be constructive with how I talk about fundraising as a Black woman, because oftentimes, you know, people ask this question, they want to hear, what was me, like racism, and it's hard. And all of those things are very, very true and real. But my co-founder and I have been really intentional about not letting that Laden, our focus on like this company needs to exist and we've chosen to go this venture capital route. So we're going to make it happen. We're going to make it work come hell or high water. And that's kind of like the resilience and the mindset you have to have as a black entrepreneur, especially as a black woman entrepreneur, because you can have everything you need and then some or like all the proof points that you need and then some and someone's still going to find a hole to poke in your, you know, your business. Um, Mm -hmm. I got passed by one investor recently where they were like, oh, you know, it's going to be hard to sell into employers. And I'm like, what I just told you, we have a health plan contract. We're not only selling to employers. And we also have right. an employer contract that's almost over the wall. So just say you're passing for another reason, but like some of the reasons that people give you, it's like, but I have that proof point and you're still- Yeah, you know, it's not the real reason. They're kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of doubt. And and the other thing is like, I try not to take things personally, but you know, what I've been doing lately is when I get some of the, for lack of a better word, BS, no, or reasons for saying no, I defend my company and not in an overly aggressive way where I'm not receptive to feedback because investors don't like that either. But to show, I know you're saying no, and you're saying this is why you're saying no, but that's not a valid reason. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think you're putting your finger on the issue. I love how you frame this. because I think as an underrepresented founder, a woman of color, person of color, LGBTQ, whatever it may be, that I think I love you use the term pattern recognition as a starting point, right? So mm-hmm. there's a range. We can talk about pattern recognition. We can talk about systemic racism. There's a range of dynamics going on. But I think the extra burden that we have as founders of color and diverse founders is that we have to sift through 
the feedback and figure out what is real and what isn't, right? Because of course, everyone says it's hard to be an entrepreneur and raise money for every entrepreneur, no matter who you are. But then if you're a woman of color in your context, you have to have an extra lens through which you filter feedback. Is this feedback actually good feedback for my business? Or is this feedback a deflection because someone is uncomfortable because of my background? And I think I don't hear that talked about enough that that is what we're often doing as founders of color or in your case, a woman of color is we're constantly having to do this extra mental jujitsu of figuring out, well, okay, this investor doesn't want to invest, but hey, maybe this is good feedback and I need to take it or, or is this feedback just deflection because really they're uncomfortable with my background, but they that's not politically correct to tell me. They're never going to tell me that. And I think that's just extra load. But I think at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, you're going to figure it out however you're going to figure it out, which is what you're showing. That's what the best entrepreneurs do. But we do have this extra burden that doesn't get framed this way, I think, enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you continue to crystallize that thought because that's exactly what it is. Like, I am very receptive to feedback. This is my first time building a company. I'm not coming to this thinking like I know it all, but I also know that I've learned a lot from actively building this company and also from being a Black woman with the lived experiences of the consumers that I'm building for that I think sometimes investors, are they don't respect that level of, that type of expertise. But I try to be, you know, like you said, I try to suss and filter out, suss out and filter out what feedback I need to be paying attention to. Like, for example, if something about how me and my co-founder are communicating our revenue model is not resonating, and we can typically suss that out when we're getting the same kind of questions from different investors. We're like, we're not, we're clearly not explaining this well enough because this keeps coming up. And then there's feedback like, oh, it's hard to sell into employers. Like, it's hard for anyone to sell into employers. Yeah. So, like, so the point is, do you love this idea or not? Is this, a, you know, like that, that can be solved. That's a solvable thing. So exactly. yeah, no, thank you so much for that framing. You know, from, from what I can tell, you know, you do have a number of founders who rep, who are women or founder or, or investors, excuse me. You have a number of investors who are women or investors of color. Can you talk more about your your investors and and what that looks like. And it seems like you've had some intentionality there too, around the types of investors you've brought around you for this company. Yeah. I love this question because, you know, as I was even deciding to go the venture capital route, I had some, you know, skepticism. I've heard from other founders, like if you raise venture capital, you have to be very clear on the fact that you are building your company to exit it. If you want to hold on to your baby for forever and ever and ever, you probably don't want to raise VC funding. Um, If you don't want some other people to weigh in on kind of like your business strategy, you probably don't want to raise VC funding. And so I was really thoughtful around, okay, if I go down this path, I want to make sure that we choose investors that are really, really aligned with our mission and what we're trying to build and the impact that we're trying to drive. And Mm -hmm. really important to have women of color on our cap table as investors and Black women in particular. And then also from a business standpoint, have investors that had LPs that were potentially going to be our customers. Can you explain an LP just for some people that want to know? No, I know we know, but yeah. LPs are limited partners and they are the investors who invest in a venture capital fund. And so for some funds, and particularly the ones that we've taken some capital from, our investors, their investors are like health systems or health plans. And so Mm -hmm. when your investors have investors who are your potential customers, they're oftentimes able to make introductions to those customers 
easily or more easily than you having to do the, a cold call and try to figure out who to reach out to. So they're strategic, like a true strategic investor. Exactly. So that was my thinking, like prioritizing having women of color. Also wanted to wanted some doctors on our cap table because it felt important to have their buy-in and their support as well. And so Catherine Finney, um, she's the GP at the Genius Skill Greenhouse Fund. And she's been an operator herself, has um, successfully exited two companies. And having her perspective as a Black woman, um, who also has an MPH from Yale, was like really, really important to me. I'm like, I have someone who not only has my back as an investor, but knows what it's like to build a company as a Black woman and also understands the problem that we're solving for. That's, so she's like the perfect profile of the type of investor that I wanted. That's great. Um, tell me this. So, I mean, you know, your company clearly solves a health disparities problem, right? So, you know, there's so much focus on health equity in terms of terminology in our market. Um, and this is the first time we're really even using that term in this conversation where I'm bringing it up because, you know, what you've really done well is frame like, this is a straight up market problem. I have lived experience. We proved it was a market problem by bootstrapping and putting something out in the market that grew exponentially. But at the heart of it, you're solving a problem associated with health disparities for black women that underneath it is is linked to not just poor health, but women unnecessarily dying, black women specifically. So I see this also squarely inside of that health equity space, like the work you're doing. Tell me how you see that um, and what's been going on in the last couple of years through the pandemic and how your company fits inside of that narrative that people are building. Yeah. So when I think about health equity, I think about the fact that all of us as patients are coming to the healthcare system with different privileges, advantages, disadvantages, and for historically marginalized communities like the Black community of Black women, we really need solutions that could then, that specifically address the needs and the gaps in care and access that we've historically have had. Um, we need solutions that are tailored to the very specific needs that we have. And so for for Black women, that is oftentimes finding a provider who you trust will see your humanity and who will take the time to listen to your concerns. Because if you have access to that type of provider, you're more likely to engage in preventative health care. And that's really mm-hmm. what I want. I don't want Black women avoiding seeking care when they need it because they're afraid of encountering a doctor who's going to be biased or straight up racist to them. Um, and so I'm of the mindset when I think about health equity, it's like, How are we building and designing solutions that are tailored to the specific needs of certain patient populations because they have been historically underserved, overlooked, and dismissed by the traditional healthcare and legacy healthcare system? Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and tell me, you know, Black women also are, so on the one hand, they have their own health challenges, which are often ignored, and you're working on that issue. But Black women also tend to be the anchor around health and wellness in their family and community. And so I wanted to ask you this. It seems like this model's impact could extend into the families of these women, the kids of these women, things of that nature. How how do you think about that? I I mean, I see that as a clear, massive opportunity. Yes. My my co-founder is on this um, episode. She would love, she would jump at this question because uh, whenever people ask what's her vision for health interview, that's exactly the direction that she goes in. So she's a mom. And as we know, there's um, a statistic that women, not even necessarily black women, but women are like, are labeled the chief medical officers of their households. Like they're of their making, households. 
They're making mm-hmm. 80% of the healthcare decisions. So I've often, we were often asked, like, what about health in his hue? Like, what about black men? And like, aren't black? And I'm like, black men are just as important as black women. We're not saying that they don't have also experienced health challenges and um, disparities and outcomes too. But we know that if we're able to engage a woman, she is likely managing and coordinating the care for her household, for her partner, for her children. And we need our women healthy to be able to take care of everyone else. They got to be healthy first, exactly. frankly. They're, exactly. they're too busy taking care of everyone else to often think about their own health. This is one part of the issue. Exactly. And the other um, reality is that women engage with the healthcare system more frequently than men. So that is why we are, are focused on on women's health because we know the ripple effects and the good ripple effects that that will have for an entire household. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And I see a lot of opportunity there. So look, like I want to talk a little bit about leadership. It's clear that you have a, a lot of tremendous leadership skills that are related to why you are where you are and why I know you're going to do not just this, but a lot of other things to impact our health system. Tell me as, you know, because we're talking about this theme throughout the podcast season, tell me about the types of skills, values, and leadership that you see are important and necessary to really transform what is today an inequitable health system in the U.S.? I think the very first thing is not being afraid to speak truth to power, which is Mm. one of my secret powers (laughs) or superpowers because I'm really not afraid to to call a thing a thing and to name racism and to... um, just name things as they are, as you see it. There, oftentimes, I think the reason why we've been kind of comfortable and complacent with the status quo in healthcare is because we find these euphemisms to talk about mm-hmm. issues that are deeply in, embedded in this healthcare system and institutional racism being one of them. Right. You use the term institutional racism and someone says, well, social determinants of health. And we're like, well, we're talking about racism, but social determinants of health is there too, right? People kind of pivot off of the issue. Exactly. They want to use the kinder terms. And it's like, no, if we're going to solve this problem, if, or if we genuinely want to solve this problem, we have to be able to name things for what they are so that we can also address them appropriately. And that is, I think, the work of anyone who's building in this health equity space. You cannot use cutesy language. You have to be able to shoot straight from the hip and call a thing a thing if you're really trying to drive impact um, in terms of health equity. The other thing I would say is, and this probably sounds in in tension with how we are trained to think in the venture capital space, but we have to be more collaborative more than we are competitive. And I know that the name of the game is winning and and trying to get to the the great exit, but I I care a lot about that. And I'm also a very competitive person or else I would not be in this space, but I care more about solving a problem. And everything that I do in terms of product building and development isn't just to build a sexy product. It's to actually solve a problem that I see. And also to partner with other entrepreneurs who are building in the same space to execute on solving this problem together. I think that's spot on. These problems do require partnership because of they're so deeply entrenched and challenging. Um, so thanks for that. Well, look, you've shared a lot of uh, wisdom, Ashley, <laughs> in this conversation. Sorry, I had to go there. Um, but to close out, I ask every guest this question. Why are you in on health equity? Why? And I love this. I love to play on the words, in on health equity. I'm in on health equity because I can see a world in which every patient is getting the quality care that they deserve and need. And I want to see that world exist. I want to potentially live in that world. But even if I don't get to see that day myself, I want to be a part of creating it. And so that's why I'm in on health equity. 
Oh, well, we really appreciate you and everything you're doing for black women, for advancing entrepreneurship, for inspiring younger people um, and being collaborative. Um, you are really the, I think, blueprint of the type of entrepreneurs we need to really tackle these problems. So thank you for everything we, uh, you do. Thank you so much, KP, and thank you for having me on your illustrious show. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.